And I'd invite you to take your Bibles uh, initially with me this evening and turn to Matthew 24. We will be turning over to Revelation and walking through Revelation 6 and uh, a portion of 7 and 8 this evening in, in a few moments. But uh, we spent some time last Sunday evening in Matthew 24. And I'd like us to remember um, what we saw and uh, carry it over into what we're learning this week since it is a part two of a message uh, in regard to the first half of the tribulation. I believe, as do many, many uh, scholars, that the, the end times, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, uh, these are, are open to much debate even among good uh, conservative scholars. But I do believe uh, that Matthew 24 is a, it parallels closely the chronology of the uh, events of the final seven years of tribulation. And I use that as uh, the template for my understanding as Jesus Christ taught his disciples what would be at the end of the age. And I believe that, that we can parallel that. And I think you'll see that this evening. As I mentioned last week, I'm confident that you will do so. So we'll begin this evening by reading Matthew 24, verses 4 through 13. And then we will um, rehash a little of what we mentioned last week as we step into this next week. Look with me, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4. Actually, let's begin in verse 3 for context. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And all all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because, the iniqui- and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. I believe we see in this um, the events of the first half of the tribulation. Many would correlate these events to things that are happening in this age. And indeed, these things are happening, right? Famines and wars and rumors of wars and persecution are happening at, at our present time. However, I believe what Jesus Christ is speaking of is something that is a, a far greater reality in the days to come. And again, I will show you this evening why I believe that to be the case. So last week we learned about the characteristics of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And the first of those characteristics was that Israel would be regathered. And I showed you the verses that reflect the reality that Israel is regathered. We looked back uh, into the book of Ezekiel and saw that, that they were people that God promised to unite and to regather, bringing them back into the land. And a portion of why this was, as we looked back in Daniel, is because there would be a man, the prince that shall come, this evil man that we know to be Antichrist, who would sign a seven-year peace agreement, presumably with the nation of Israel. Daniel says he would sign it with many. And... 
Uh, we, we, as we put the scriptures together and prophecy together, as we mentioned last week, it would appear as though Israel and the ability to build the temple and to reinitiate sacrifices and these sorts of things is an important aspect of that peace accord. That this man or, or this peace accord is going to be something that no one's been able to do, which is broker peace in the Middle East. The second great characteristic of this age is that Israel is at peace for the first around three and a half years of the, of the tribulation. Israel is described in Ezekiel as being a place that does not have walls, that it is a place of peace, that it is a place of rest. And we'll look next week when we consider the events around the midpoint of the tribulation Gog of Magog, one of the reasons why he wants, as we learned in Ezekiel, one of the reasons why Gog of Magog desires to go down to Israel is because he sees them as easy pickings, because they're at peace. The third characteristic is that the temple is in operation. We know three and a half years into the tribulation, Antichrist will cause the sacrifices to cease. He will perform the abomination that makes desolate uh, presumably placing himself in the temple as God. And when he does that, he will, he will defile the temple, cause the oblations to cease. Well, if they're going to cease, that means they have to be happening. And so we would uh, assume in part that part of the peace accord that Antichrist brokers at the beginning of these seven years of tribulation is and has to do with the ability of Israel to resume their sacrifices to build a temple again on Temple Mount. We, we assume that. Perhaps we will be reading the news tomorrow and we will find out that Israel is allowed to build their temple again and, and sacrifices are going to start. And Maybe it will happen hundreds of years before um, the seven years of tribulation began. We really don't know that. But this is the assumption. Based, uh, it's a, we, we might call it an educated guess based upon where things are in the Middle East right now, knowing where Israel is and knowing the difficulties that would be involved with them having a temple again, it seems uh, logical to believe that it would be something that would take a very unique peace accord for Israel to be able to rebuild their temple and reinitiate sacrifices in that temple. And then we mentioned just in passing this fourth characteristic, the characteristic that we're going to speak of specifically this evening, which I simply call the beginning of sorrows. The Israel's regathering and their peace and the temple in operation, these are things that are happening politically, we might say, or religiously in the nation of Israel, but there's, there's greater things happening in the world at large. And these things are not nearly as positive as what we might have, uh, what, what we might be thinking when we consider Israel's state. The, the, likely, one of the reasons why many in Israel, or many of the Jews are going to come back to Israel in this time, is because it will be a time of such peace and prosperity in the land. So Israel seems to be at a time of peace. However, it is also the beginning of sorrows, that the initial warnings that God's wrath has come. And this will not be pleasant at all. And so that's what we are going to look at this time. I said we would as we look at Revelation 6, 7, and 8. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. And we are going to consider what Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows. 
In Revelation 6 and 7, Jesus has a scroll, which Revelation 5.1 describes as being written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Jesus is declared to be the only one worthy to loose the seals and to open this scroll. And in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we see the dramatic and terrible events that accompany each of these seals on the scroll being broken. Perhaps you've seen a letter that was sealed with wax. And that's kind of the idea, that you pop that seal. And the, this scroll had seven seals on it. And Jesus is going to go through and pop each one of these seals. And each time he pops one of these seals, something there's going to be an accompanying action on earth. And when this scroll is finally opened, what we will find in that scroll is further and greater judgment upon the earth. So, so these seals being broken, it's not the official judgment, we might say, as much as it's like almost the birth pangs of the judgment. It's the warning signs. It's the, it's the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. And so, we look in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and we see the first seal opened. The Bible says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So we see the first seal broken and a man on a white horse. He has a bow, he has a crown on his head. There are two common interpretations of this. The first being that this man is Jesus Christ. We see in Revelation chapter 19, a picture of Jesus Christ riding on a white horse with his vesture which says faithful and true and a crown upon his head. So many have said, well, I see the parallels. This must be Jesus. I would disagree. I believe this to be an a indication not of a king of peace, but a king of false peace. You notice that there is a crown on his head, but he comes to conquer he comes with a weapon to conquer. He is conquering. And as we look at the other seals, there's nothing in this seal, any of these seals, that is indicative of anything positive. So it would be unlikely to see Jesus as the first of these seals. Another reason we'll see is because I do believe very strongly that Matthew 24 parallels Revelation 6 and these seals and I will show you that as we get through it. So I believe this is the first judgment, and it is the arrival of a man. We'll, uh, we'll interpret him to be Antichrist, and he will come on the scene with a false peace. White being that regal horse, the, the, the look of a, of a or the, the horse that a king would ride, the horse as, that a king would ride as he comes out from a battle as he has won the victory, as he is conquering the nations. And um, this would be a false peace being brokered by the Antichrist. We call it a false peace because we know Antichrist will break that peace accord within three and a half years. And this could parallel what Jesus warned of in Matthew 24, verse 5, that many would come in his name saying, I am the Christ. 
that they are the one that can bring peace, that they are the one that can broker peace in the world. And so the world, uh, presumably, will be at a time that is very um, positive. People will have great positive ideas of what is to come as they see that there's finally peace in the Middle East. Something that has not been able to be done has finally been done. Peace has been made. This man, this king on his white horse, this, this man capable of brokering such an important peace agreement as one that would be between Israel and the surrounding Arab nations. So the first seal, we see a man riding a white horse. The second seal is broken, and we see this in verses 3 and 4. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So this second horse comes riding in when the second seal is broken and this man has power to take peace from the earth. So even though there, there might be peace in Israel at this time, this first three and a half years, that does not imply that the whole world will be at peace. In fact, it would seem to be that perhaps the events surrounding this peace concord or perhaps some other events would throw a good portion of the world into war. I could see, personally speaking, a peace accord between Israel and the Arab states causing a great deal of angst around the world. And it might be that this would kick the world into a time of of violence and war. This could parallel Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7, where he says to those that are reading that they would hear of wars and rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations. So as we walk through uh, Revelation 6, I believe you're going to see very careful or close parallels to what we just read in Matthew chapter 24 as well. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to put your thumb in Matthew 24 and you could see those parallels, it might help you. So the first seal, a man riding a white horse, false peace. The second seal is broken. John sees a man riding a red horse, war and murder. Jesus breaks the third seal in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see, thou hurt not the oil." And the wine. This third man is riding a black horse, and this is intended um, to be a sign of famine, a um, a implication of famine. The idea of a measure of wheat for a penny, the concept of um, three measures of barley for a penny would have been about a 15-fold increase from what they would have expected for that time. A penny would have been about a day's wage. And so this would have been a 15-fold increase. That implies great inflation. And not just inflation over the wheat and the barley, but also over, as we see there, 
the oil and the wine. So even commodities that would not normally be affected by a famine seem to be affected by this famine, the grapes and the olives. And so this would be implicit of a tremendous famine that would hit the world. So much so that it would be very difficult for folks to buy and to sell. This could parallel what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 7, which describes famine and pestilence in those last days as Jesus continues to describe what would befall folks in these last days. And, and as these seals are broken, this is what we see. First horse, white horse, false peace. Second horse, a red horse, war. Third horse, a black horse, famine. The fourth horse is a pale horse. Look at me in verses 7 and 8. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth beast saying, Come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed after him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So the fourth beast is a pale horse. This idea of a pale being kind of that whitish, greenish color that you might see in in a dead man, that that lifeless, bloodless color, that kind of color when a person is on death's doorstep. This is the idea of the color of this horse. And riding this horse, uh, very clear, very uh, explicit, uh, there's no getting around the interpretation of this one, is death. Death is riding this horse horse and hell is close behind because these are folks that have not believed this is the world that is lost in unbelief death and hell follow false peace war and famine apart from men's hatred apart from evil apart from the shortage of food and the natural uh, um, the natural disasters will take a heavy toll upon the earth's population all of these elements will come together to destroy many men. This is perhaps what Jesus spoke of as well in Matthew 24, 7, when he said that there would be earthquakes in diverse places as the final of those signs in Matthew 24, 7. So Jesus spoke of wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence and earthquakes. All of that culminates with this fourth seal who is a pale horse ridden by death and hell. So that leaves the horses. There were only four horses as we see those first four seals broken. As Jesus pops that fifth seal, we read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So we don't see anything happening on earth when the fifth seal is popped, but we can perhaps implicitly understand what's going on on earth a great deal of persecution among those who would not um, forsake Jesus' name, who would, who would 
claim to follow Jesus Christ. We believe that the church at this time has been removed from the earth in the rapture. However, that does not mean that people will not be getting saved. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that there will be countless numbers being saved. And we'll see that in Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, at the end of the the sixth seal, we'll see a a bit of a um, parenthesis, if you will, into something else that's happening in these first three and a half years of the tribulation, which is the sealing of 144,000 Jews and the salvation of countless numbers from, from around the world. So with this comes this cry, this cry of the of the those that have been martyred for the faith saying, Lord, when will you take vengeance upon this earth? And Jesus says, just a little while longer. It's on its way. This is the beginning of sorrows. The birth pains have begun. Things are happening. This could also parallel Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10, where Jesus promises that those in this time will be betrayed and will be hated of all men for His name's sake. So we continue to see these close parallels between what Jesus promised in Matthew 24 at the end of the age, the signs of the end of the age, and what we see happening as Jesus breaks each of these seals. In the sixth seal, when Jesus breaks the sixth seal, we see the events in Revelation chapter 6 verses 12 through 17. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind." And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? When the sixth seal is opened, there will be a great earthquake felt around the world. So great, the scriptures tell us that the mountains will be moved out of their place. That this will be also accompanied by stars falling from heaven onto the earth. That the heavens will depart as a scroll. That, that, that it will be a, a time of... This will be the first dramatic super seemingly or at least partially supernatural event. It will still feel very natural at this time. But this is the the first time where we see indications that the world at large knows that God is doing something. So much so that the Scriptures tell us the kings of the earth, the great men of the earth, the rich men of the earth, the chiefs of the earth, they will run into mountains and to the hills in terror desiring to have the mountains fall on them in order to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb on the throne. What an interesting picture it is, is it not? The Lamb, so often in in history and in even our minds being a picture of something that is kind, something that is gentle, something that is mild, almost something that is vulnerable. And now, 
as we get into the book of Revelation, the Lamb who was slain for us has become a Lamb of great vengeance. So much so that the greatest of all the earth will beg the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of this Lamb. Their money won't save them. Their power won't save them. All the feats of human ambition will have come to naught. They will know at this point that something supernatural is happening. But what is even more interesting still, and we'll see this several times in the book of Revelation, is their response to their knowledge that God is at work here. The text makes it clear that they know that God is at work, but their response is not one of repentance, is it? They do not say, aha, God's wrath has come. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. They say God's wrath has come. They run to the mountains to flee from Him, to hide from Him, to ask the mountains to fall upon them. There is no repentance. It is at this time, according to Revelation 7, that God will seal the foreheads, or at some point within this time, God will seal the foreheads of 144,000 Jews. What is this sealing? There is a great debate as to what it is. Some believe sealing them from harm, which we do see play out, that they are sealed from harm. Some believe it's sealing them unto salvation. I would tend to, to go along those lines a bit more, that this is a sealing unto salvation, that this is a mark that they are gods, that, that God is going to use them, that God is, has set them apart for His purposes within this time. And we see a listing in verses 5 through 8 describing that 12,000 Jews from each tribe, with the notable exception of the tribe of Dan, will be sealed on their foreheads. We recall from the Old Testament that there were, in a manner of speaking, 13 allotments or 13 tribes in Israel because Joseph was split into two, Ephraim and Manasseh. So when you split Joseph into two, you have 13 tribes. This was not a problem. There were typically 12 inheritances in the Old Testament because Levi was not given an inheritance. So you had the 12 tribes that received their inheritance and Levi was left out because Levi had their, their six cities of refuge and they worked around various other cities in the suburbs and such as ministers and then they ministered in the temple of God. However, in Revelation, we see two tribes that are not mentioned by name. We see the tribe of Dan, and we see the tribe of Ephraim. And in Dan's place, we, we see Levi mentioned, and in Ephraim's place, we see Joseph mentioned. Now, it is interesting that Joseph is mentioned in that it's now Manasseh and Joseph instead of Manasseh and Ephraim. Why? We don't know. There have been speculations as to why. Most of them not really much of anything, more grasping at straws. So we don't know why it is these changes are made. But it seems reasonable to believe that Ephraim would be Joseph because Ephraim came from Joseph. It's fine. But, but we still do see that Dan is left out. This has led some to believe that Antichrist will in fact be from the tribe of Dan. Because many in history believe that Antichrist will be of Jewish descent. And so there are those that have thought that Antichrist will actually come from that tribe of Dan. He'll be a descendant of Dan. Those sorts of things. This is speculation. We just plain don't know. Why is Dan left out? I have my theory. 
my theory is, uh, has much to do with the fact that they left their inheritance. If you recall in the Old Testament, they moved from the southerly area where their inheritance was supposed to be up to the northern tip and they ran some, some Canaanites out of the northern tip and they took a, a valley up there and they named the city Dan. And uh, I believe that the Lord saw them as completely forsaking their inheritance. And so that is my theory, but it's all just theories. So these 144,000, as we look into the, the time of the tribulation, will help evangelize the world. They will be a part of God's plan. They are sealed on their foreheads, 144,000 Jews. But it's not just the Jews that are saved, however. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and psalms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. We're going to continue ahead briefly. This is not so much a time where I preach verse by verse through Revelation as it is a survey. And as we continue in our survey this evening, uh, we come to the seventh seal, which will begin in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And in Revelation 8, verse 1, we see this. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of an hour. So we would, in a manner of speaking, say that silence in heaven was the result of this seal. When that seventh seal was broken, the scroll was now able to open. So we could almost say that all of the rest of these judgments, which will be called the trumpet judgments, will be the manifestation of this seventh seal. This will be the contents of the book that is opened or the scroll that is opened. The trumpet in Israel was sounded for two very particular reasons. One reason was for joy and gladness. It would be sounded at a time of of celebration. The other was for war or warning. Sounded at a time when doom or, um, or violence was about to commence. Here we would do well to interpret these trumpets as warning trumpets, not joy trumpets, not celebration trumpets. This is a um, picture that a Jewish mind would understand very well. The sounding of the trumpet to sound a warning. The breaking of the seals was not but the beginning of sorrows. It was the beginning. It was, it was the birth pangs. But now we have the warnings of greater tribulation to come. Within these seven trumpets, we will see not simply sorrows of natural disaster and men's wickedness, but the beginning of things unnatural and terrible, supernatural, that will come upon the earth. The first trumpet, as it sounds, we read in verse 7 of Revelation 8, and it says this, The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. This first trumpet sounds and there is a hail mixed with fire, be it um, a hail with lightning as many interpreters say, or maybe a hail literally mixed with a type of other fire falling from the sky and it falls upon the earth. 
and it destroys a third of the trees and the grass is burned up with this fire. Recall that there had been famine and pestilence prior to this. Perhaps there had been some degree of drought as well. Maybe the grass was very dry and then this hail and this fire fall and it burns up the grass and the trees are destroyed and we are seeing um, tremendous, tremendous uh, change in our earth within this time. The second trumpet sounds. And the Scriptures describe in Revelation verses 8, 8 and 9 this. The second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. Something that is described as like a burning mountain. We do not exactly know what this is. We know in the next verse or in the next judgment, there will be a star that falls from the sky. So is this mountain a, a, a meteor or, or, or would the star be a meteor? Why are we seeing different ideas? Uh, we're, we're not sure. We don't exactly know what is happening here, but we do know the effects. The effect of this burning mountain being cast into the sea is that one-third of the sea becomes blood, one-third of the creatures in the sea are killed, and one-third of the ships of the sea are destroyed. So this is a devastating thing. You say, well, Pastor, do you really believe that these things will come to pass? Well, I believe it happened before. I believe when Moses stood before Pharaoh and God uh, commanded him to do the signs and a third of the water became blood, I believe it became blood. And the frogs that came up from the river, I believe that they came up. And the locusts that covered the earth and sky, I believe it happened. Do I believe it beyond the capacity of God to make this happen literally? I don't. I believe it is. I believe it is within His power to do so. Is that what we are seeing here? There's debate. There is debate. But where there is no clarity, we should take the Bible literally. If we see clarity, there are things we can read into it. 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. We can read some things into that number, 144. We can read some things into the number 12. It could be valid, but I'm not comfortable with it, so I'm not going to go there. We can read some things into the, par the pictures of the land and the sea. Oftentimes, particularly in the book of Revelation, the land is described as Palestine and the sea is described as the Gentile world. So we could see that first plague being upon the people in Palestine and, and the, the, the second one being upon the people of the world. We could do that and there could be some parallels, but I'm not comfortable with that. It doesn't ring to me as being entirely accurate, so I'm not going to go there. Please understand that there are some, there's some wiggle room in this. But where I can't find clarity, and by the way, I've read up on this, I've studied this. It's not just me saying, well, I've read this, I don't, I don't understand it. Where, where we can't find clarity, it's best for us to, to go as literal as we're comfortable. So, something falls into the sea. It turns a third of the sea blood. The creatures are killed. The ships are destroyed. Third trumpet. Third trumpet we see in Revelation 8 verses 10 and 11. The third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon 
the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood is a very bitter, poisonous uh, concept. And as this star falls from the sky, hits the earth, it poisons the water supplies. And the scriptures tell us that many, many men die because the waters are poisoned in this time. The fourth trumpet sounds, and we see the account of that in Revelation 8.12. The fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So when this fourth trumpet sounds, something happens to the sun by proxy the moon, and to the stars. They are smitten. They are reduced by a third. Is this actually one-third cut out? Is this a third of dimness? Or is it, as would seem implied here, that for a third part of the day, it doesn't shine? There's nothing. Not quite sure how that plays out. But it will be supernatural. It will be something very unique. The fifth trumpet sounds. And these final three trumpets, five, six, and seven, are presented a little bit different. Look at verse 13 of chapter 8. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of, the he- of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. There's a breakup here between the first four, which are our judgments, but the next three are what we often call the woe judgments. Three times that word woe is repeated. If you know anything about the Hebrew mind, a repetition is a form of emphasis in the Hebrew mind. So to repeat something three times was the highest form of emphasis possible. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the seraphim around the throne of God and they are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That thrice holy emphasis, meaning it is the most emphasis they can put on it. Here we see woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the trumpets which are yet to sound. Revelation 9, verses 1 through 11 is this fifth trumpet. And let's look at it together. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. This would be a, a, a angel this time, the star here. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God on their fore- in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man." 
And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold and their faces were as faces of men and they had hair as the hair of a woman and their teeth were as the teeth of lions and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek hath his name Apollyon. The woe judgments, stinging locusts, which came up from the bottomless pit, the place which the Bible describes as the place where the demons are locked away until the time of the end, until the time of judgment. Recall when Jesus met the uh, man who was possessed by legion. Legion begged him that he would not send him away into the pit, but would release him to go into the swine. That is the pit that legion feared the place where demons are locked in chains until the time of judgment. And these locusts come up from this bottomless pit, which is located at some location we would assume in the earth. There's implications that Hades, Abraham's bosom, and the bottomless pit are all located somewhere under the crust of the earth, though that's not specifically or explicitly stated in the Scriptures. And these stinging locusts will come out. And with this locust will be a smoke that covers the earth. So there is a darkness that covers the sun. Things are are dark. Things are gloomy. And there for five months, these scorpion locust beasts are given power to sting men, but not given power to sting those who were sealed on their forehead with the seal of God. Those 144,000 Jews at the very least are separated from this judgment. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell to when Moses and Pharaoh were contending with one another and God eventually separated the plagues so that they only afflicted the Egyptians and not the Jews? A similar instance here, as those who are sealed on their foreheads with the seal of God are not afflicted by these scorpions, but the rest are. These scorpions would not, excuse me, these locusts, these locusts would not torment or would not destroy the earth. They would not destroy the trees and the grass, but only men. And and it says that these men will not be able to die. They will seek death and it will flee from them. They will not find the means by which to die. It will be a time of terror on the earth. The sixth trumpet is mentioned in Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 19. Please look at it with me. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. And I heard the number of them. 
And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power was in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads and with them they do hurt. And the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. If there was any doubt that what was going on was supernatural, this particular judgment would end all doubts. Angels are loose from the river Euphrates, leading horsemen, 200,000. You do some quick math on that. 200 million is that army. And as this army goes forth, the horses that they're riding are breathing fire and brimstone and death and are killing one-third of the men on the earth. It is a time of great destruction and great death. A time where men are recognizing that God's wrath is upon them. But I draw your attention again to verses 20 and 21. That they repented not. At the beginning of sorrows, when the Lord released the seal, the sixth seal, and there was the great earthquake, The kings of the earth hid, knowing that God was wrathful and angry against them, but did not repent. Now that seventh seal was broken and the seven trumpets have been, six of them have been sounded. And here again at the sixth trumpet, just like the sixth seal, we see an understanding of what is going through the mind of man. And it is not repentance. It is defiance. They refuse to turn to God from their murders and fornication and adultery and idolatry. They will refuse to turn from the worship of devils. See, because it is within the capacity of man to convince himself of anything. And if a man will not believe the testimony of Jesus Christ... If a man would not believe, as we mentioned last week, if the Pharisees would not believe in Jesus Christ, having seen Lazarus risen from the dead, having seen Jesus Christ Himself risen from the dead, why is it we think that anything else that would happen upon this earth or that God could do unto man would convince him of the reality of God and His righteousness? And with the sixth judgment, we stop for this week. Next week, we are going to address some of the events that surround the midpoint of the tribulation. We do not know exactly when these events occur, whether it's prior to the midpoint, after the midpoint. Um, This is a bit nebulous, but we'll talk about several of these events next week. 
And as we do so, we will seek to continue to understand uh, what's going on and how it connects to what we learned about in Ezekiel. Much of which, which had to deal with the Millennial Kingdom, but much of which also had to deal specifically with the midpoint of the Tribulation. Let's close in prayer.